Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey guys, today's episode is uh, a little different because usually at this moment here at the outset is when I do the sponsorship plug from the official sponsor, but today I'm going to do a, a brief holiday fundraising drive. I'm going to beg you for money. How does that sound? Does it sound exciting? Are you excited about that? Listen, I don't do this very often. I don't like to do it. I don't like to ask for money, but uh, it's the holiday season. This is when everybody asks for money, it seems. So uh, if you're a regular listener... Uh, or if you just really like the show, uh, or if you're just a particularly generous person, or if you're feeling guilty about something and are desperate to repair your karma, here's how you can help the show so I can keep it going. Uh, one option is to get the app. The app itself is free. It's the Other People app, and it's available for your iPhone, your iPad, your iPod Touch, your Android, whatever device you have. And once you have that, sign up for premium. It's like two bucks a month or uh, five bucks twice a year, or like nine bucks for one annual payment. You have options, but it's a, it's a relative pittance, and uh, it helps. And when you do that, you have access to everything, all, all episodes, the full archives, etc., right there inside of the app. So that's one option. Uh, the other option is to just donate on a rolling basis via PayPal. And you can do that at the show's website, otherpeoplepod.com. Uh, there should be, if you scroll down in the right sidebar, a little donate button, a little PayPal donate button. So uh, there you have it. That's my pitch. If you like the show, if you get something from the show, if the show entertains you uh, or uh, informs you, <laughs> whatever the show does for you, if it does something positive and you want to give a little something back this holiday season, I would certainly appreciate it. And uh, uh, I'm sorry. Shit. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. 
And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, right. folks, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is my disembodied voice digitally rendered. This is your actual physical body receiving my uh, disembodied voice. Thanks for being here. My name is Brad Listy. It's good to be with you. Thank you for receiving me as I report to you from uh, an apartment building in Los Angeles, California. It's nice to be received. I'll be honest about that. And uh, remember in the old days how people used to receive people? <laughs> like that turn of phrase was common. People would receive visitors. Like, what are you doing tonight? Oh, I'm going to be receiving visitors. And uh, and then uh, remember when people would court? Like that That's a, another uh, term that's fallen out of fashion. People courting people. You know, courting was a thing. Not that not that we would actually remember it because it was so long ago, but, you know, if you've read uh, 19th century literature or watched uh, period pieces at your local uh, cineplex, then you're probably familiar with this, how men would court women and uh, women would receive uh, gentlemen callers. <laughs> Do you remember that? Am I alone here? Uh, like, and was that actually a real thing or is this a fiction? It seems like uh, when you think about it now, it seems like it cannot be real. It has to be a lie. Like just the formality of that situation and the uh, formality and the, uh, the inherent repression of the whole thing, the terminology, all of it, you know, like people being received. Like, can you imagine being courted by a gentleman caller? If you're a woman or a man, but I guess back in the day, it would have been difficult to, uh, to, you know, be a man courting men and being a gentleman caller, calling on a man, <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? Just to be received as a gentleman caller in a parlor or, uh, what do you call it? Was it like a, a salon? Is that what people would do? They would receive gentleman callers in uh, their parlor or uh, their salon, or their uh, sitting room. My God, how are you today? Are you feeling well? How are you feeling? Uh, actually, don't answer that, because uh, obviously that would be strange, especially if you're in public and uh, you're listening on headphones or what have you. I would recommend that you not talk back to me. I feel like this is a very strange beginning. Are you sensing that? <laughs> it's okay. Let's just let it be strange. Let's just take a moment to let this be strange. Oh, or perhaps I could reboot. Uh, I could uh, pause for a second, take a knee, and I could try to regroup and then come back fresh. Let's give that a shot. Okay? Let's try that out right now. Here we go. So uh, during that brief break... While I was pausing, I glanced at the internet as I was sitting here in my chair, and uh, I saw on my screen some listicles, or links to uh, listicles. You know what a listicle is, right? These articles, of these lists, the top seven, whatever, the top ten, you know, everything is a list these days. Is anyone else, uh, here's my question, is anyone else hating the internet lately? More than usual? I feel like it's just getting worse, these content sites. It's just lists 
and shit and naked attempts to uh, generate viral traffic. It's just trash and uh, algorithms and bullshit and paid content embedded like advertisements that look like content. It's just, it sucks. I need some new websites in my life. What should I read? Tell me what to read. Uh, If you're listening and you happen to be very internet savvy, uh, if you feel like you read really well online and you manage content effectively with uh, both skill and precision, uh, why don't you email me at letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Let me know what sites you have uh, bookmarked, what do you read regularly, uh, and so on. I would appreciate it if you would do that. Uh, and if you would, you know, help me out and, you know, not just book sites either. I'm not that big of a nerd. I want some variety in my life. My God, am I tired? Can you hear it in my voice? I'm not complaining. I'm just letting you know there's some fatigue here. And, uh, also, uh, prior to beginning this, I ate some seaweed just to let you know that. You know that seaweed at Trader Joe's? Have I talked about this before? Is anyone else addicted to uh, seaweed? It's like uh, these little dried sheets of seaweed that almost uh, feel like paper. (laughs) And you eat them. They're squares of seaweed. And uh, I want you to know that I'm addicted to them. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer or if you just love literature... I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is Noah Cicero. His new book is out there now from Lazy Fascist Press. And uh, its title is uh, really good. It's called Go to Work and Do Your Job, Care for Your Children, Pay Your Bills, Obey the Law, Buy Products. How many words are in that title? 19. What do you think of that? Here he is, folks. This is Noah Cicero, and his new book, once again, is called Go to Work and Do Your Job, Care for Your Children, Pay Your Bills, Obey the Law, Buy Products. So I'm in Las Vegas, and um, it's a nice sunny day. And I'm in one of those Adobe apartment complexes, and I'm in like a little tiny room kind of and uh it's very empty there's nothing on the walls and um because i just moved in and there's books all over the floor and um there's no bed because i sleep on the floor okay so so there's blankets on the floor and stuff so but why las vegas 
Oh, I came to Las Vegas because uh, my friend and her family asked me to come out here, and because uh, to, to help her and her mother live out here. Okay, and so her mother's in uh, declining health, or? Yeah, her mother's in declining health. She has cirrhosis of the liver. She's 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 going to die still within the next year. Ugh. So it's very tough because like um, her husband died in April. Ugh. So. So yeah, he died of lung cancer, and then I knew I know I've known both of them for like ten years. I've known both of them for a long time, so it's been it's been a tough year, yeah. Jesus, so you're essentially like being a nurse? No, no, cirrhosis of the liver. You you don't. I, I the only thing I have to do is take the garbage out, and I wash the dishes, and I clean. She can walk around and stuff, and um, she can do stuff. She made me hot dogs last night when I got home from work. See, she's but cirrhosis of the liver is basically your your stomach swells because it's full of liquid, and then one day you just like die because your body can't take it anymore. because your kidneys die and your liver dies, and then you die. Whatever. I'm not I'm not a doctor, but I think that's how it works. Oh my God! So it could just happen at any moment. Yeah, yeah, it could happen at any moment. Oh my, okay, I mean, I guess that's the case for all of us, but it just seems more like concentrated, you know, with a, in the context of like an illness, but I guess like it's a useful thing to remember. It could happen at any moment, <laughs> um, you know, not yeah, to, not to make mean, light, but just like to, you know, as a reality. I mean, watching someone die from cancer, it's very slow and then you can tell and you can call hospice and hospice comes, you know. And you can see them become skeleton, become grayer and grayer and grayer until they die. Does that make sense? Have yeah. you seen someone die from cancer? I have, yeah. When I was a kid, um, my buddy was, was it. Was it just? It was awful. Yeah, I mean, like especially late stages. It was my my friend's older brother, and uh, he was only like eighteen, nineteen years old. But I remember being uh, with him when he was like really close to the end, and it was just like you know, especially because he was so young and was like he was a great athlete and all this stuff, and. The illness just kind of, uh, you know, it's powerful. Yeah, it turns you into like a skeleton-looking gray creature. Yeah, yeah. Very, very zombie-like, and you can tell. Okay, they're going to die now. We need to call hospice. But for cirrhosis of the liver, you just, you just, um, something happens, and your kidneys and liver break down, and then you, you randomly die one day. Jesus. Okay. Well, I mean, it sounds like you're pretty. You don't seem like uh, super melodramatic about it, or is that just like, uh, am I mis misreading your tone? Like, are you pretty comfortable around illness? No, I feel fine. I feel, I mean, she, I mean, she's going to die, you know, And but she did everything that people do before they should die. She gave away her houses, and she gave away about everything she owned, and that, I mean, that's what you should do. That's the right thing to do, you know, and that's the, that's the, when you're at the end. And so I feel like that's fine, you know? Yeah. That's how, and she lived her life. She had a kid. She had foster children. She took care of relatives and they needed help. She did what, you know, she lived it. She lived her life. You know what I mean? Sure. Sure. And how did, and how did you, is this just like a, your mother's or your, your friend's mother? Yeah. My friend's mother. Yeah. Okay. Well, and then what are you doing? You said you go to work in Vegas. Or are you working at like a casino or something to make some dough? Or no, no, I, I got here about three months ago, and I applied for about two hundred jobs, office jobs, and um, I never, I never got a job. 
So, and because there's about, I went to a, I mean, just to say how many people are, are looking for work here, I went to a Starbucks job fair for Starbucks at a casino, and there was over 100 people there to get like three positions at a Starbucks. Like what? How, how do they? Even, would, how do they even make that call at Starbucks? Like how when you're parsing a hundred people? <laughs> well, I, yeah, I went to a job fair at like one of those apartment complex type things where they have gardeners and they have leasing agents and they have all these people. There was over a hundred people there for about like ten jobs. Jesus, I have no idea how they pick it. I so, have no idea. So where did you wind up? I wound up. I I couldn't find a job in any office and or anything. So about this. Halfway through the second month, I started applying at um, any restaurant that would hire me. And then someplace called Bocce Burger that makes Asian fusion burgers. And I started <laughs> two days ago, and I work. I had to work in the dish tank. So, I, I mean, it, 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 I don't even understand my life. Because today I was on NPR in the morning, someone talking about me on NPR. Wow, last night I was in a dish tank. <laughs> so they, you were on NPR? So you were on, like, Las Vegas NPR for this book? No, I was on, no, something. Somebody was, some author named Dave Newman, they asked him um, who his influences were, and he said, Noah Cicero, and talked about me for like five minutes, and someone sent it to me. So something, some NPR somewhere, and then I was just like dishwashing last night. I, I don't understand <laughs> why, how that even works out. Well, but you know, I think like, I feel like that kind of thing... That kind of dissonance is sort of, I mean, maybe it's always been common in literature, but it feels like this economy, like you talk about all those people showing up for a Starbucks yeah. job, like, you know, it's really like a culture of haves and have nots. And if you're, you know, if you're not among the lucky few, it's a fucking yeah. bear, you know, it's really hard. Yeah, yeah it's really hard. Um, so, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, how do you have like a long term, uh, like uh, idea, or do you have an idea of how long you're going to be in Las Vegas, or is this like a just I guess until this woman passes away, or are you going to stick around for a while? Um, well, I mean, I still apply for jobs every single day from Craigslist and Indeed. So if I find a job that's pretty fun or something that pays well, I'll stay here. But if I don't, I'll probably go back to like Ohio or something. Okay, and you, uh, you're from Youngstown or outside of Youngstown? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm from outside Youngstown. And did you did you uh, get your degree at, there? Uh, yeah, I got my college degree at Youngstown State University. Okay, okay. Because I, I, I the reason I, I asked it that way is because I think I have like some sort of like Twitter memory or something about maybe it was your blog, but I, I think I remember you being in school. I didn't know if you had ever finished, but. Um, so yeah. you have, you have that degree, you're in Vegas. Like, do you know what kind of work you would be looking for? Like, are you trying to find something that like, is there something you can think of that would be, um, you know, friendly to your writing pursuits in terms of schedule or something, or is it basically just whatever pays the best? Uh, basically like I wanted to be like, uh, they have leasing consultants here where they work for these giant apartment complexes and they just show rooms, I, like tried. I apply for all those. I apply for, like, office jobs. Basically, whatever pays the best, and I just, like, hope for the best. That's all I do. That's it. Nothing um, specific. Okay. Yeah, I just didn't know if you'd found, like, the great the great job, you know, to have while you're trying to also write books. But I guess, like, it's, like, college professor or, I mean, you know, like, what what jobs are, like, super friendly to the uh, to the pursuit, if any? I don't know if there are any. 
is is college professor friendly? Like I don't, I don't like it seems like you're reading all day long. That you know that's talking about language all day long. It seems like that would be overbearing and overwhelming to me to be like grading all these papers and reading all these short stories and then you have to like write a review and then you have to read a book and you're just like fucking like oh language 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 all day. But if you're like a dishwasher or you were like a leasing agent or you were like something really boring and simple where you just like do random shit all day long over and over again, then you just do that stuff and then you can kind of think about what you're going to write and then go and write. And so like, to me, like being overwhelmed, if I had to deal with language 10 or 12 hours a day, that intensively, I couldn't, I wouldn't be able to write. Like I, I would break down. I think that's I a good point. I want to have fun. But yeah, I, I, I never got the whole, I couldn't do it. I couldn't, it would, it would wear me out. Yeah. I think that's a good point. I think that there's something to be said for having like, uh, some sort of day job that doesn't like suck out the energy that you need that, you know, it doesn't use the same muscles that you use to write. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Cause you, I mean, the, the part of your brain you would use to write and the part of your brain to do some kind of simple job are two different parts of your brain. So you would have the energy to do both. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that's how I view it. Okay. And so um, you are, what? how old are you now? 33 years old? Yes, I am 33 years old. You've published several books. You published your first book when you were, what, 23. So it's been 10 years that you've been publishing. Um, you've been, you know, very active uh, for somebody your age, I think, you know, from a publication standpoint. So clearly you're getting the work done. Uh, was this something that you have always wanted to do? Like, when did you come to uh, the idea that you would be a writer? I think when I was like, uh, maybe like in eighth grade, I really started to feel like I wanted to be a writer. And I remember writing like really bad songs. And then I got my mother's typewriter, because this is what I'm 33. So this is what, like 1995, 1996. And we didn't have a computer until, I think, 1999 in the house. Wait, when did you get your first computer? What year was it? Oh, God. I don't even remember. I mean, like, it was like, I remember that the, the brand name was Brother. That's what it was called, which, <laughs> which seems kind of creepy. Did you, did you first type on a typewriter? Um, no, but I had a typewriter like early, like when I was like 21 because I thought I was going to write on it. And that lasted about a week. But, you know, I've always been a computer person. Um, you know, oh. that's where I learned how to type in high school and stuff. It was computers, if I recall correctly, but we had like a rudimentary computer in my basement when I was in junior high and I'm older than you are by five years. So, you know, uh, but it was nothing like it was, we, we, we were not like a technology family. We just kind of like got one because I think that my parents thought we were supposed to. <laughs> um, oh, wow. My, yeah. we, we didn't get one. My mother, I had a, a typewriter. And it was like a really big clanky one from like 1985, maybe 19, like late 70s. And that's when my mother bought me paper and she bought me ribbons for it. And then I would just, I put the, I put the typewriter in the room and I would just like type all day. Like one thing after another, one thing after another. And then finally got a computer in like 1999. And then I would type on like, what was, what was it called? WordPad? Or something. Something, yeah. I mean, I, I don't even remember what we used on the uh, on the brother, but it was you know some sort of program. But um, you and, and then you said you you graduated from Youngstown State. So did you go into school right out of high school? 
And were you like an English major no. in that whole thing? No. Uh, the chronology is like I graduated high school, and then I lived in the summer at the Grand Canyon. I lived in San Diego for a little bit. Then I came back home, and then I went to the. I went for about. I think I got 33 credit hours, and I didn't pick a major. I didn't do anything. I didn't take anything but intro courses. And, like, none of my friends were in college, and I wasn't having any fun. And, like, I feel like when you don't have any friends that are in college, you don't get any positive reinforcement for going there. <laughs> what, were the, what, were like your, what, what were your friends doing? Like, what were your friends from your hometown doing? They were all just working in restaurants. They were just like, they worked in restaurants, that's it. And they just smoked weed and did drugs. And so I didn't go to college. I quit college. And then I went back when I was 27 years old. I went and finished and I got a political science degree and a sociology minor. I didn't, I only took one or two English classes the whole time. Why, why, did, why, why did you do that? Because by that point, you were already publishing books. So why not go into I guess you felt like you it would be overkill? Uh, because I always got the best grades in government classes. And um, I always, I just like my parents, my family, both sides of my family are really, really political. So I kind of grew up like always knowing more about politics than everyone else because everyone just talked about it constantly. So I just got good grades in it. And they had this professor named Dr. Lepek that was, he really loved literature and he really loved politics. And he always like, he was like my mentor in college. So I just wanted to take as many classes as I could with him. So what, what like his idea, go ahead. I was going to say, you said your parents were really political. So what does that mean? Like, were they... Like, did they run for office or did they, they, like, you know, or were they, like, stumping for candidates and marching and stuff? Or No, no, um, not that at all. My mother's family is really, really extremely Republican. Like, my aunt, my, mother, my, my aunt is the head of the Republican Party of the Central Committee. I don't know what it is. The Central Committee of the Republican Party in Trumbull County. And they go to the political convention every four years, the Republicans. And my dad's family is like extremely union Democrat. And my my grandpa's brother was the mayor of the town, like basically next to mine for like over 10 years. So they're extremely Democrat. And my mother's family is extremely Republican. And so I like know both sides really, really, really well. And I just, like, I don't know, I just, like, when I hear political things, it goes into my head really well, and I love to think about political things. Yeah, I, I, I sort of do, too. I mean, I don't have, like, you know, my parents aren't, ex like, really political, but I, um, I don't know. I find myself really fascinated by politics. So I'm curious to know, with respect to your upbringing and, the, like, the polarity that existed between your parents and their families and their politics, like, where that leaves you. Like, you know, do you, like... Like, how did your political identity form itself in that context, and and with respect to this, you know, the schooling that you had? Um, my political identity, I mean, went with my dad's family as um, Democrat because I was, I mean, to me, being from Youngstown, you should be a Democrat, you should be a liberal, and I just, my mother's family is very, like, they're very Republican and they're very. Um, to say this, this is what my grandpa would do. His idea of like 
talking to a seven-year-old was to tell me a racist joke. <laughs> and they were very racist, very homophobic. And they, my, my family they got into a huge fight one time because my grandpa called my brother a Dago because of something that happened involving a motorcycle like a dirt bike, and we were ostracized and everything. And they would always talk shit because we were Catholic and Dagos or Wops. And my grandpa, they would tell, like, if they were, they would be 10 feet away from me, and, and they would tell Wop jokes because they thought it was I don't even understand how a Wop joke could be funny in, in, 20, in 2005. And, I don't and for that. people listening, what's a Wop? It, well, it means without papers, but... Um, it's an Italian person, or a guinea, a guinea, a wop, a dago is all a derogatory term for an Italian person. Right. So, um, go ahead. Well, I mean, and so, like, I, I didn't realize, I guess, that, uh, well, I guess that's, I mean, I guess I did realize that things could be that uh, racially heated that far north of the Mason-Dixon, but... Did your parents uh, have, like, did you, was your mother a Republican and your father a Democrat? Like, did they join the chorus with their families or did your parents have similar, you know, cause it, if they were, um, that much different politically, it sort of amazes me that they could be married. I know people do that, but like, I don't understand how that works. <laughs> well, um, my, they're pretty, those two specifically, not the whole thing. They were kind of apathetic about the whole thing. Like they just thought it was a game. I think to fight about and then but my mother switched to the democratic party after clinton she said that she was done with the republicans then, and she was just like very pro-union and vote and now she's very pro-democrat and they're very excited to tell me that they they voted for barack obama so did you uh do you feel uh, any kind of similar sense of apathy or like are you pretty uh energy you know do you, do you remain energetic around issues related to politics because i should say that the fact that you're interested in this stuff and um, studied it in school seems to be a bit of an outlier within the context of, uh, and I don't, I don't mean to uh, reduce or label you, but just within the context of Altlet, I've noticed that there's not a lot of, I don't notice a lot of explicit political writing um, in that community. And I don't know how much you associate yourself with it, but I mean, I sort of, know of you in that, you know, broad context. Uh, am I misreading it or do you feel the same way? No, no. One time, I mean, I was at a couple of events and people actually like, came, they were all like, younger people in their early 20s and they wanted to talk to me about politics. And they, because they were like excited to, to meet me and talk about politics, if that makes sense. And then what happened was like after the first three ex, like vocal dialogue exchanges, I realized they didn't know anything about politics. And it turned into me just explaining definitions, um, <laughs> basically like intro, intro to politics 101. Because I mean, I'm going to say like most Americans, they don't even comprehend the definitions of the words that they're using. Well, it's a, no, you can't even talk about them. The, yeah. There's like, I want to say 40% of the country doesn't even know who the vice president is. And that's like, like <laughs> that's not even a joke. You know what I'm saying? And like, that's not a joke. You're not, this isn't no, a joke. I mean, I, I want, you know, well, I would have to, I would have to like Google it and find out what the polling um, organization was that asked <laughs> that question, but it wouldn't surprise me. And like, 
this is the thing about politics that always gets my goat, especially as somebody who like reads a lot about it and is like, you know, very interested in it. I'm not, I don't claim to be some kind of like, you know, nuanced policy expert, but like I read a lot more about politics than the average bear, but people can have such passionate feelings about something that they have no fucking understanding of. And I don't get it. Like it would be like, uh, you know, being like a hockey fan and knowing nothing about the game of hockey but getting like pissed off when somebody tried to explain it to you. you know? like, <laughs> does that make sense? It's like, if you don't know, if you're not interested yeah, in it, it and you don't sense. know anything, then just own that. But like people, politics is a weird domain. It's like, you know, everything goes out the window and people just get riled up about stuff and they don't even take the time to read anything or understand what they're, what they're pissed off about. You know, it's very strange. Well, I mean, that's, that's the difference I think between like, just like ideology and, you know, governance, which is like ideology is like a form of like political religion that you want people to get excited about. And right. It always involves a little, a little bit of the absurd. And then there's governance and then pragmatism where you, you, have, you have your laws and you have ways to make laws or ways to take away laws. And then you govern over those laws pragmatically and deal with situations involving the research on the situation. But as you can tell, just from that last thing, it's just got really boring. Like just explaining that. Like, <laughs> oh, let's just talk about governance. Like, <laughs> well, it's not. You know, then, it's really. Te- I mean, it can be really tedious work, and I think it exasperates people. You know, like just the grind of having to get uh, things done within within a, a system. You know, a legislative body. It's just. It's never. It's it's rarely simple and quick. You know, and and. and it's rarely clean, you know, it's just an inherently messy process, but like, what are our other options, you know? <laughs> no, I'm fine with it. I mean, you should have laws and, and you know, tribunal-type situations where they talk about things, tenants and everything. I'm fine with that. Okay, so I'm interested, like, do you feel like... Um... You know, obviously your your political uh, science degree and your interest in politics has, has worked its way into your fiction. Like, are you thinking explicitly along those lines when you sit down to write creatively? Like, are you messaging? Because, like, I know, like, having taught creative writing and I've read this in interviews before that, like, it can get sticky and difficult when you, you know, try to express some sort of political idea in the context of fiction because, you know, readers can often... Um, you know, intuitively sense when an author is kind of like standing on a soapbox and trying to yell at them via fiction. And it usually winds up making fiction, um, you know, less effective than it otherwise might be. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, do you, do you ever? Well, yeah, it, it has to be like, let's say I, I can't remember who it was. And it was like the person say like Dave Eggers wants to write something political, right? And when Dave Eggers is like a nice middle-class guy, and he's grew up in a nice neighborhood, and he's white male, and he's going to say something political. It shines out in their writing, like someone like Dave Eggers. But I feel like I'm more like, so you have Richard Wright, like, you know, native son and everything. Richard Wright lived a political existence, being a black male in that time in history. His life is political. Something political has been done to him. So when he writes, it's 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 part of his conscious, it's part of his subconscious. For me, being from like somewhere like Youngstown, having a union mom, and basically my area being politically destroyed in 1977 when the steel mills closed, 
Because if you think about it, the steel mills closed, and the reason they closed is because Japan, Germany, and France nationalized their steel industry. And when they did the, the bailout of the cars in, what, 2007, that shows that it was legal to do a bailout of the steel mill industry. So, therefore, the lives of all those people, about the million people that live in that area, were politically destroyed in one act because they re- the federal government refused to save it. So my life is political because I live in, if you live in Flint, Michigan, your life is political. If you're right. like a black male, even now, your life is political. You, 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 you aren't benefiting from, from the privilege as much as you could or whatever. And for me, it's like part of my subconscious. It's part of my, the way I think. So I feel like I don't come off too soapboxy because it's just part of me. Because a part of my life has been greatly affected by a political decision that happened three years before I was born. And so everything that came after 1977, within 40 or 50 miles of Youngstown, everyone's life was affected. So what, all the way deeply so, rooted. So okay, so you grew Go up. At, you grew up in this. What did you see? You know, like how did it manifest in real in real terms in your life? Um, you know, like families breaking up, people on food stamps. Like, what was it? What was it like? <laughs> no, no, I wasn't that bad because my mother got to work at Chevy, but like you could just see it everywhere. Like how it, to drive through Youngstown in the '90s? It was just like there was nothing, and even not so much now because they did a lot of cleanup. But the houses were empty. They would light houses on fire. There was like the murder capital of, you know, the murder per capita place for a long time. And they even had those things like this, this uh, what is it called, the Youngstown tune-up where people's cars would blow up. And it's just like everyone is just like really generally poor. Wait, wait, like, wait. Can you stop for a second? I, the Youngstown tune-up, what does that mean? Like they would rig people's cars to explode? Yeah, yeah, that was from Youngstown. That's like a, that's like a famous thing, the Youngstown tune-up. Oh, okay. I, for some reason, I never heard of that. Is that like where you like soak like a, you know, you, you put some sort of wire in the gas tank or <laughs> I'm going based on movies. You know, so. I, I've never, I've never had to do it. Okay. But, um, good. That seems fortunate. But the, the woman, remember the old woman I live with? Um, I talked about before. She's about 60 something years old and she worked at a bar in Youngstown in the 70s or 60s or something. And she said that she was looking at the bar one day and then the mobsters would pay homeless guys to go out and turn their cars on. And one day one of the homeless guys went outside and turned the car on and it blew up. Jesus. <laughs> so, I mean, I mean, it's like, even if it didn't happen to you, I'm living with someone who's something that did happen to, and that story's there. Right. Like, these are the stories of my people. Does that make sense? Stories of my people? Of course, of course, you know. So, um, okay, so it sounds like you kind of, like, escaped the worst of it, but you had, obviously, you know, close proximity to the worst of it. Is that accurate? No, no, when you say escape the worst, no. Because, listen, I am, remember I said I work at Bocce Burger, the dishwasher, right? Yeah. So, listen, this is how far the ripples would be. There are barely any office jobs in the Youngstown Warren area. So when I was going to college, or a lot of people go to college from Youngstown, there's no way for us to get into an office-type situation. 
where we can learn a deeper skill, something more valuable. So we're stuck in a restaurant or we're stuck in some factory and making 850, and we don't learn any kind of like really specific skill because our area just doesn't offer it, even though there's 800,000 people there. Because there's just nobody has any money and there's no businesses and there's no special things going on. So when I left my area, I go to another area and I don't have any special skills. So it's just like a Mexican coming from small, some small place in Mexico and they come to America and they have no skills except for maybe like fixing a car. So it's just like the ripple continues. I keep not getting things because of a, because of a failure from 1977. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, it does make sense. I mean, so like, like do you have any idea what the answer is? Like, do you, I mean, if you've thought about this politically, then you must have, I mean, like, you know, from a policy standpoint or is it fixable or are you resigned and do you think it's just completely like irrevocably fucked or like, what's the, <laughs> what do we do? <laughs> I mean, you mean like fix Youngstown or fix small places? Or? Well, yeah, I mean, just like to, it, it just seems like. In a better society, people who, you know, take go through the trouble of getting a college degree and are educated, you're obviously a bright guy. Like, it seems insane that you can't get a foot in the door or find some sort of job, you know. And But I know how common it is, you know. It's like, what the – how do we fix this? And, and then to think of all the uh, – all the money like floating at the top of the economy, it just seems like really perverse, you know, to me. Oh, to fix that? I don't know. You would probably need to raise the minimum wage up to like $14 an hour and then try to get them to stop raising prices and gouging people in the prices and raise probably taxes on what people are making above 2 million to like 70 or 80% maybe. Yeah. Like they did in the sixties. Yeah. Well, that's what the people don't realize. Like, I've had this argument before, but, like, the uh, the income tax rate on people in the very highest bracket during World War II was, like, 92%. And then it, yeah, it, yeah. Went, it went down under LBJ, I want to say, to, like, 72%. And then under Reagan, it went down to, like, 35%. So, like, those are the, th those yeah. are the, the two big drops. But, like, you know, people in the, in the highest bracket in World War II – which incidentally was like when America, with the American empire was like at its peak, <laughs> um, like the economy was never better. Uh, and I'm not saying it was all due to like extremely high income tax rates, but I feel like that was like the, the pinnacle post-World War II. We were like the only uh, superpower at the time or whatever. And then people at the top were clearly making a lot of money, but they were also paying 92% income tax. You know, that seems like something. No, yeah. I have noting. I haven't. I have no. I did my um, senior thesis in college on the history of debt, and I did a big thing on that, on, on showing the tax rates and everything. Well, and it's. And we, that, um, I feel like we should. Ahead. We should. This is a good time to mention that your your new book uh, is called "Go to Work and Do Your Job: Care for Your Children, Pay Your Bills, Obey the Law, Buy Products," which is, a, <laughs> yeah. is it, I feel like is a, a fairly political title. You know, there's definitely politics inside of that. Yeah, yeah. That's supposed to be the five pillars of American society in the book. Is there is there a uh acronym? Have you come up with an acronym to like use as like shorthand for the title of this book or are you just gonna make everybody say it? Um 
everyone, you can only have to say it once, and you can say go to work after. Like, I didn't, the, the publisher picked the title. I titled it Neotap. So that was, like, the the thing for me. I and like, then he I like the title. Along with, yeah, I like a lot. Yeah, everyone really likes the title. Yeah, I think it's... Yeah, my, it speaks to comments. Yeah, but I just think everyone just says go to work. I think is this that could be proper for me is just go to work. Okay. Uh, that makes sense. I'll call it go to work from now. But um, okay, so you raised in uh, the small town. Uh, your mother has a union job. You said, and then what did your dad do? My dad was a he's a meat cutter. He was a meat cutter at Cicero's Market, and then after they put in the WalMarts and everything, um, he had to go to Kmart, and he became he's a meat cutter at Kmart now. Okay, and so. Where did you where did you get your literary bent? Like what turned you on to books? Um God, oh wait, let me think. So my parents are like my my dad was like really critical of me when I played and everyone like when I played sports and everything. He was always like very critical about things. Um and so I quit sports in like eighth grade and then we had this really weird um, high school principal that was obsessed with literature and obsessed with books and like obsessed with getting people to read. So I thought since my dad doesn't read and my mom doesn't read that if I could read books, I wouldn't have to leave my room <laughs> and then no one could, no one would criticize me and um, because they wouldn't know what was in them because they wouldn't read them. And like my dad, my parents, like they, they, like, they always, they never ask me about my writing at all. They've never asked me really, like, I'll mention it, but then, like, they'll just go, like, last, last Sunday, I said something, like, last week, I said something to my dad about getting an article on Spot Catalog or something. And he, 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 he screamed, yeah, and I was like, what? And he was like, Ohio, Michigan just scored. Like, he literally wasn't. <laughs> God. So do you get do you get along with your folks? I mean, is this like kind of like a a, a difference between the two of you that you've come to accept, or it's like were, were there like heated relations growing up as like an adolescent? Oh yeah, it was really terrible. It was like <clears throat> endless heating relations until they like had to put me on all this medication, and they brought me to the mental ward, and they took me out of high school and they stuck me in a special high school for the mentally ill. What did they think? You, what did grade. they think? What did they think you had? They, I have a schizoid affective disorder. Um, my brother was schizophrenic. He killed him. My brother was schizophrenic, and he killed himself. My grandma is schizophrenic. She she died last year, though. And then my great uncle killed himself. My great great grandpa walked off into the woods and never came back and died. And then, like my great grandmother, she died in a mental ward. This is all in my mother's family. Like they're the schizophrenia, schizotypo, the Republicans, depressive, the Republicans. Yeah. <laughs> right. Republicans are all, they're all, there's this like suicides going back all the way, you know, all the way to wherever they came from. Just endless suicides, weird things. Oh my God. Mental ward. No. Yeah. They said schizoid aspect. So I was really, well, it's really, really violent and really, really, and depressed all the time. So what? Uh, like, wait, okay, so so you, you said your brother killed himself. How old were you when that happened? I was twenty-two or twenty-three. I think uh, twenty-three. Jesus. Okay. I'm Probably so, ten years ago. That sucks. And he was schizophrenic. Yeah, he he was schizophrenic. He was he was really like um 
a really like normal kind of person. And he went to college and he got good grades. And then when he was about 24, like a year after he graduated from college, he used to start getting more and more paranoid until he was about 30. And then he couldn't take it anymore. And that was it. Um, So what is like schizophrenia? Because I feel like this is sort of a cloudy thing. Like, I don't even know if I fully understand it. Do you have, I mean, having gone through what you've been through, do you understand what it is? Like, you know, people think of schizophrenia, they think of like multiple personalities and, you know, people talking gibberish and, you know, but it has different manifestations. Like, do you have any insight? Well, my brother had schizophrenia and my grandmother has it. And then my, the kid, my neighbor who I grew up with was my, like my, pretty much my best friend growing up. He became schizophrenic too. Jesus. And, but I would just say it it is, you you can do a lot of things that people can do. You can eat, you can, you can drive, you probably, you can drive a car, you can even put a house together. But it's like, say my friend, um, he's really good. He's, He's been schizophrenic for a long time and he can build things. He can build things. But then as he's building it, you walk over to him and you're like, hey, how are you doing? And he's doing really good building whatever he's building. And he looks at you and says, you know, I think I might be Jesus today. (laughs) And you're like, I mean, like, there's obviously a part of his brain that's building it. There's a part of his brain that's driving the car perfectly fine. But there's also a part of his brain that's, like, completely irrational. And he just... They get fired over and over again from every job, even if they're doing their job, because they start saying weird shit right. to people. And is this like an is, then, is this a genetic condition, or are there external causes? And forgive me for not knowing this, but I mean, like, is this? It's just something that gets passed down through the generations, or is it like? Is there are there environmental causes? Um, schizophrenia, as far as I know, is genetic. And then even if you don't, and then even if you don't have schizophrenia, you might be like half schizophrenic. Like I have schizoid aspect disorder, which is kind of like I think maybe a little bit schizotypo, which means even though I'm not fully schizophrenic, I'm still very prone to paranoia and very prone to if I don't watch myself going into a state of irrationality, where I make really bad choices. But like. They say that when you're when a man is about 25, if he does something like he goes to the military, like boot camp can bring it out. If you have schizophrenogenics or doing lots of acid or doing lots of drugs, like or an extreme circumstance where you have an extreme amount of anxiety, the schizophrenia can be brought out. So, do you have you done a lot of drugs? I mean, I, I take it you haven't been in the military, um, but have you done a lot of drugs? Like, have you ever dropped acid and or anything like that? Yeah, in high school. In high school. Okay. I mean, have you, uh, the only thing post high school would be like Adderall or marijuana. Sometimes that'd be it. But you, but you, you're cognizant of your situation. Like you, you, you guard against it, right? <laughs> you're not like. Yeah. You're yeah. not like you're not like taking. You're, you're not like you don't seem like a super risky person. No, I don't think so. I have to have a, uh, to deal with, like, my brain, I have to have lots of habits and very structural life. And, um, which makes, that seems to, like, that seems to gel well with the writing life, you know, because you form, like, a writing yeah. ritual. I mean, do you feel like writing is part of what you do 
to, uh, you know, kind of work against like schizoid tendencies or. Yeah, totally. Totally. It's like, it's very good. It's, yeah, it totally works against it. It gives my mind something to do because when, because the thing with my mind was what it does is that it'll take a thought and it'll just keep going on that same thought over and over again, obsessively. And then it'll spin out of control. And then I really won't take care of what's around me. So what I have to do is, if I can write, I can just concentrate, and my mind will go completely into the into the act of the writing. Like I'll just like become one with the whole thing, and my brain will feel fine and it'll feel calm. Does, does that make sense? No, yeah. I mean, it's like it's um, this is this is the crazy thing, and it's like a different. It's a different manifestation of the same thing that I've spoken about on this show before. But it's like there's a part of me that envies you. <laughs> Um, just that like writing performs that function for you has that calming effect. And like, you're able to, like you say, you know, go inside the writing and like focus completely on it. Uh, maybe in a way that doesn't come as easily to those who aren't trying to, um, you know, avoid a schizophrenic episode. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, it's, it's yeah. like, it's like, it's like taking like a, a challenge, but like then turning it into an advantage or something. Yeah, like I saw like Jonathan Franzen writes in a room where he covers the windows and he takes out all music and he and he points he puts the he puts the desk facing a wall so he can completely concentrate on it, right? Because any kind of distraction fucks them up. But like I can be I I like to go to like a coffee shop where it's full of people, and then I, I feel fine there. And it's not a problem right. at all. Yeah, I kind of. No, I, rem- no. I remember reading about Brett Easton Ellis, and he had an apartment. This was back when he was still living in New York, and uh, at least at the time that this profile that I read was written, he had like almost nothing on the walls. So it was like a blank white studio apartment in New York City, and he purposefully kept it that way for I think similar reasons, you know, just so that it, there wouldn't be clutter and he wouldn't be distracted, and he could just kind of like be in this all white environment. <laughs> Um, which sounds sort of nice, I guess, you know, from a, a concentration perspective, but, um, it sort of sucks to need that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, they get the job done, obviously. Right. Right. Whatever works. Whatever, <laughs> they don't, works. whatever works. I mean, everybody's different. I mean, it's not like writing is not like factory work or like even it's like, or being a lawyer. It's like, you know, it's, it's, you have your own way of doing it. You know what I mean, you have to be an individual about it. Yep, you have to come. Yeah, you have to come up with your own like your own ritual. So yeah, you have to find it. I want to ask you a bit more about your childhood because you alluded earlier to being violent. You know, before you were institutionalized and before, um, you know, I guess there was like this disruption in your in your life as an adolescent. But like, what do you mean violent? Like, were you starting fights at school? Were you violent at home? <clears throat> Both. Um, I would, like, start fights at school. Like, if someone just, like, said something that pissed me off, I would just, like, punch them in the face. Just out of nowhere? Out of nowhere, like, completely awesomely psychotic. It would just be, like, completely, like, Jason Statham, punch him in the face, attack them. Really extremely violent. One time, somebody, like, I had long hair in eighth grade, and someone, like, threw pencil shavings into my hair this douchebag, and then I just, like, took a pen and stabbed him with it. And um, Where? 
Where, I mean, like, where in his body did you stab him? I stabbed him in his back over and over again. Hmm. I just had a bunch of little puncture pen wounds. I don't think I was strong enough to penetrate the back. <laughs> and then this one time, this was pretty cool, and um, this kid wanted $10 from me. So he, like, came to my house, and I was like, whatever, I'm not giving you your fucking $10. And then I just, like, beat the shit out of him and, like, broke his nose. But my parents were on the porch and saw the whole thing. <laughs> I, like, didn't care about anything. Did your parents just let, was, your parents just sat there and watched it? No, they came outside and they pulled me off of them and everything. And so, but what, was, at what point did you, at what point did it become apparent that you were going to need some help or did people start to suggest that you might need like medical attention? Uh, in like eighth grade, they started sending me to counseling. And then in ninth grade, I got into like three fights before even like the second semester was, is this what they call it semesters? Yeah. Period. Second period was over. Oh yeah. Okay. And then they kicked me out of school. They're like, you can't come back. And where I lived, they had this program called TAP, T-A, it was a transitional adjustment program. And they gave me this special test, and I had to be on medication. Everyone in this school had to be on medication to prove that you could go there. So they gave me a test, and they had to, I had to prove that I was really depressed. And then they, I went to the school, like, somewhere else in the county, and then there was only about 16 kids in the school, and we were all mentally ill on medication. And there was an in-school counselor, and we had to go to a counselor one day a week, and we had to go to group counseling one day a week altogether. Like sitting in a circle and the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, but I had to do that several times, sitting in a circle. Yeah, I just feel like that's... But usually, sitting in a circle in one of those places isn't very good, because I, like... I didn't have, like, super bad, like, I never, like, usually there was someone that was molested or something, and I always, always just felt weird for being there, because I, I didn't know, like, it just felt weird. You're like, I'm just, a, I'm just, you know, I just have schizophrenia, I feel terrible being here, <laughs> I, don't mean, I, don't, I don't mean to make a joke, but it's sort of funny. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay, so what, then what happened? Like, did you go back to high school? Uh, did you eventually get re- reintegrated into a non- tap or, or high school, you know, non-medicated high school, or did you finish up there? Yeah, yeah. And uh, when I was a senior, they let me go back to high school. Um, and what, was like, did, uh, you, did you pass some tests or no, something? Like, how did, you, how did they decide that you were ready? Um, well, I was no longer violent. And so I, I've never gone into a fight since ninth grade in high school, and I was well-medicated by then. And I had gone for years of counseling, and so I just started to be, like, really normal. I just, like, started to dress as normal as possible. And then I just, like, started playing, like, a game, like, in my head how to pretend I was normal. <laughs> because everyone I went to, there was seriously, like, only 300 kids in my high school. So every I knew everybody since they were a little kid. I had played baseball and football and soccer with all of them. I knew their parents. We all knew each other. This was a small town. So everybody knew that I was mentally ill and crazy. So I had to, like, pretend that I was normal. So I, like, I created this, like, alternative identity, which is, like, called my, alter- like, my normal identity, which is really funny because it's just, like, me saying, yes, sir, yes, ma'am. Oh, I'll be happy to. And, like... Instead of, like, saying anything about myself, I just ask them questions. So they never ask me anything. 
So it's just like an alternative identity I use for like dealing with people in public, and I developed it. But that seems like that seems like an effective strategy, you know. I mean, I, I but I mean, I and I mean like also, I, you know, I also mean to say that it seems like all of us do that to some degree. Yeah. I mean, more I guess some more than others or whatever. But like, I feel like I have so, some component of that in my personality, depending on environment. But um, but it's not it's not very sincere. Right, but it's like it's just like, but it's also not super confrontational. You just sometimes you need it, you know. Sometimes you need to just have like a a system <laughs> to to navigate yeah, certain no. certain social waters, you know. And it doesn't happen often, but um, at least not for me. But you know, sometimes you got to have that. You know, I, yeah. So, did you have friends when you came back? Yeah, I mean, I always had friends. Yeah, I had like the same friends all the time. Oh, you did. Okay. Even when you went away, they they like those friendships remained. No, yeah, I didn't go to a. I wasn't like I went to a dorm or anything. I was still in town. Oh, you were okay. So, but I mean, what did your friends? Yeah. What did your friends think about this? And like, who were your friends? Like, where were they in like the social strata? Like, were you? You know, it sounds like it was a small town and there was a small school. But I mean, <clears throat> did you? Who did you hang out with? Like, were you hanging out with like the quarterback on the football team, or were you hanging out with, um, you know who? Oh, um, my friends were like, uh, we were really into ska and punk music and we played guitars and drums and everything. And we would play music together and they would play video games. Even though I never played video games, I would just sit there. And that was basically, we were really into music and we all read too. We all like read books and stuff. And so we loved reading and we loved like music. But now like I'm probably the only person, I think I'm the only person that still reads out of all those people. And then, okay, so you get you get out of high school. You um, you do thirty, you know, what thirty three hours at Youngstown, and take your like yeah. core, core curriculum or whatever. And uh, you know, at this point, you're already writing. You're already thinking of publishing books. Like, when did it become like a thing that you were going to do? Like, I'm going to be I'm going to be in print. Um, I mean, by the, I mean, I wrote Human War when I was, I think, twenty three, but. It was like by the time that happened, I had already written like four novels and like just thrown them away. And I, re- I had written like over a thousand pages of poems by that time. It was like I was like insanely obsessed, like because I, I was so like it was all I would think about, like all I thought about from like the age like maybe seventeen to like twenty six or something, maybe twenty seven, was writing. Like I would wake up every day and start thinking about it. I would dream about it. It would be like my last thought before I went to sleep. I was just like insanely obsessed with it. Like it had to happen. I like, I was obsessed with creating my own type of voice, my own type of thing. And I wanted to create it so bad. And do you think you've done that? I think I've done like, I think, I think I could, I think I did it. I don't know. I think I did the best I could. Yeah. And like, I want to ask you about the human war. Um, because I read it and really liked it, and it seems like a, a book that was written really quickly. Um, n- and not I don't mean that in a bad way. It just feels like there's a lot of emotion in it, and it feels like it shot out of you. I don't know why I think that. I mean, maybe it's because the you know the the plot of the book unfolds over the course of a, of a really you know short amount of time. But was that the case? Can you talk about the writing of it? Um, yeah, so the Iraq War started, and then 
I don't know why I don't remember what provoked it. I was reading like a lot of Beckett and Marcel Proust, and I started reading um, Sartre. I like read Nausea, and I was just like obsessed with uh, Waiting for Godot and Endgame. Like I would make people read Waiting for Godot with me. I like bought extra copies and made people like play the parts because I was just like obsessed with it. And then, so, and I was, like, obsessed with Proust and how he would just, like, go on all these mental things, like, just talking about what's going on in his brain over and over again. So, I just, like, the Iraq War started, and I just felt so emotional about it. Like, I felt like that it made me feel really meaningless inside. Like, I felt like my life didn't matter. Like, my opinions or anyone's opinions didn't matter about anything. And that... And I think it was like the first time you realize when you're in your early 20s that you're not anything. Really, you're not that much. Because everyone grows up and they're surrounded by their family and they're surrounded by their family friends and they're surrounded by their high school teachers or their college professor. And they know them and they see them and they pretend they're really great and they give positive reinforcement. But then like the Iraq war was just, it was, you could tell that the world was such a bigger place. And I think that was like kind of like me realizing that and a lot of younger people realizing that. So I just like went home and I wrote the book pretty much within like three weeks, I think. Yeah. I was just like right in bed. And then what about uh, like editorially? Like do you, are you like an obsessive reviser? Do things come out pretty whole for you or do you like, do you noodle a lot? Like how does, how does that part of it go? Um, for my first three books that basically appear in the collective works, um, no, there's not a lot of editing going on. But like as each book passes, the editing gets more and more insane. Like for Go to Work, the one coming out now, I wrote that probably like it took me probably took me two months. And then I had an agent. Agent told me to take away ten thousand words, add ten thousand more. So I did that. And then. Nobody wanted to publish it from a major publisher, so when I brought it to Lazy Fascist, they, he made me, well, before I submitted to him, I cut 10,000 more words, and then he cut, like, 5,000 more words, and then, like, massive amounts of words cut. It's been edited and edited and edited for, like, the last two years. Do you find that, that doing that, does that part of it bum you out, or do you, do you know what I'm saying? Because it seems like maybe earlier, was it more fun before all this like, you know, insane uh, revisions started happening, or is that a part of the process that you actually enjoy, like refining and going back and forth and kind of obsessing over it? Um, well, when I was younger, I mean, I feel like when you're 22, everything is more fun. Right. The feeling is more fun. <laughs> right. And even, you know, sleeping, you know, doing anything, man, is like is more fun when you're 22 because you don't care and everything seems so new and bright. So it was so much easier to write when I was 22 or 25. And then when I wrote um, Don't Get to Go to Work, it felt like I, I, I thought about it like a production, like um, like a like Norman Mailer type of novel where you produce this thing and you tinker with it and you build it and you make you like slowly build this thing until it happens. Like, you know, like a Steven Spielberg movie or something. It's a production. Yeah. Jonathan Franzen novels are productions. You can tell when you read a Jonathan Franzen novel that, like, there's four people talking. 
in this book. They're all fighting about what should be in this book. There's an agent, an editor, and da-da-da. When you read it, in most professional novels that come out on a major press, you see this kind of like production-type level. So I just I just thought about it completely differently and, and used basically a different part of my brain to, and just like thought about it like as I'm making a movie. So are you a, are you a Jonathan Franzen fan? You've mentioned him twice. I feel like he's like pilloried a lot, uh, at least on my Twitter feed. It's a lot of people like it's like hating him as a sport. Do you do you share that hatred or do you like him? No, I like him. I, I feel like uh, I mentioned him twice because I'm just trying to make sure I mentioned someone that everybody would know. Yeah. Well, no, sure. Yeah. I just he's like he just like such a hot button figure in um, the world of books. So, you know. So if I so if I say this word Jonathan Franz, and he, I actually mean like all of them as a generalized thing of like people who have major books on major publishers. So, yeah. Sure. Sure. Um, so, okay. So with go to work, like you mentioned that you tried to get it published by, um, one of the big presses, you took it out with an agent and everything. Uh, is that, yeah. is it important to you? Like, are you trying to work up to getting yourself in print with a major publisher or do you feel, um, I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like how important is it to you to eventually be on one of those bigger imprints? Are you happy being an indie press guy? Um, well, what happened the the nuances of the situation is that they made the human war into a movie and the the movie the movie is coming out uh, at the Beloit Film Festival next year. So but like it took like four years for the movie to get done. And like the guy who made the movie was like, you should go and see if I'll get you an agent. So he got me an agent and they thought, well the movie's gonna come out and da 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 and then I ended up working I had no book, and I ended up working at a treatment center, basically by accident, because I didn't have a job, and I was just right out of college, and this girl was like, well, I worked at this one place, and I can get you a job at this place as like at a, at a prison treatment center. So I went there, and I ended up having a horrible experience, and going home, they terminated me, and I went home and wrote the book, and I gave it to the agent. And I thought, well, well... maybe it might work, because this book looks very production-like, and it's like a thriller or something. So I'll let the agent have it. And everyone was giving me positive reinforcement. So I went along with positive reinforcement. And you should always say yes when people offer you things. You know what I mean? It was like it was something really weird. But I just said, yes, yes, yes. Okay, I'll do this. I'll do this. So I gave the agent the book and he went. And everybody rejected it. Even even some people were like, we like the book, but we don't know how to market your writing. We have no <laughs> idea how to market you. The common refrain. I've heard that one before. Yeah, yeah. So, which is understandable. I don't, I, I don't feel like I'm a very marketable person. Like, um, so I, I, I don't, I, I don't feel like I, I don't know how they would market me or whatever they would do. But they didn't want to market anything, I guess. And then, so I just brought, I cut like a bunch of words out, like five or ten thousand words out, and gave it to Lazy Fascist. And the rest is history. Yeah, but I mean. I don't. I don't wake up and think I hate, uh, you know, those presses or something like that. I hate Fowlerstrasse Bureau or whatever it is. Or I don't wake up and hate them or anything. I mean, if they were like, here's fifty thousand dollars or something, here's hundred thousand dollars. If some movie company was like, I'll give you, it's, I'll make get to go to work into a movie and we're gonna spend eighty million dollars on it and Ryan Gosling's gonna be in it. I'll just still say yes, you know. I don't give a shit. I mean, I don't know what's going to happen. 
Right. Seems fine. Have you seen Have you seen the movie version of the Human War? Have you seen a cut of the film? I've seen like a rough cut of the film. I haven't seen the final version. How's it looking? I mean, do you have like a sense of it? Is it going to go like? It looks like a. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I I just. Uh, It looks like a a funny mumble comedy. It's like really funny. I don't know. I think everything I read is funny. I, I and so it just looks like kind of dark and everything and has like these really cute scenes of Youngstown of people skateboarding around like shitty buildings and it just like seems really and it has they went to they used the restaurant that I basically went to my whole life which was really awesome which so re- I, what, what restaurant me, is this what restaurant is it uh it's called the Yankee Kitchen and it's right by my house and where my where I grew up okay so, like, for everyone, I can't see the movie. Does that mean C is in uh, with scare quotes? Yeah. Does that make sense? I get, Alex? I, yeah, I yeah. You can't get you. It's like you can't have, like, an objective experience of it, like a normal moviegoer, because... No, because I'm, like, so childish. When I see, like, the restaurant, I'm just like, ah! <laughs> it's the Yankee Kitchen. And I don't even... I'm in Kitchen, and they're like, oh, they're on Market Street. And I'm just like, it's so cute. <laughs> Uh, I don't even pay attention to what's going on. So we, you know, I forgot to ask you about uh, Korea. You had a, you spent some time in Korea over the past couple of years. That's another thing I remember from social media, unless I'm totally mistaken. But... <laughs> yeah, I was there for a year. Yeah. Teaching English. How did that go? Like before I let you go, like that was uh, was that a good experience? Was it weird? Was it fun? Like, um, the first three, the first two or three months was really really tough because I had to learn how. to to read it fast to get where I was going. I learned how, I needed to learn how to say words. I needed to learn how to teach English to Korean children, which was really hard. So, like, for me, like, the first two or three months adapting was really kind of tough, emotionally and physically exhausting. But, like, as soon as this, like, wave broke about the third month, and then it got really fun and it got really exciting. And I just basically lived in right in the Seoul area, the Seoul metro area in a town called Sungnam. And you could get to Gangnam, I think everyone knows that, really quickly. And I could go to Hongdae party. And it was like, it was a lot, a lot of fun. Really, really, really interesting, completely like altered me as a person. So why did you come home? Did you have, I mean, did like, you just have like a, like a defined amount of time that you were hired to teach or did you just decide that you'd had enough? Um, you have a one year contract uh-huh. and then when your contract is over, you can go. But, but the thing is, I was a Hogwan teacher. I was an after-school teacher. So I basically only got two weeks off a year and holidays. So I never had... You You don't have enough time to go home and see your family at all as an, as an academy teacher. So it's like you have to go home and see people. Right. And it's like a, you're you're left there. So I had one, one, one of the weeks I had off, I went to Cambodia. To see him re- and to see Anchor Watt. Yeah, sure. And that was really awesome. Well, that sounds cool. I mean, it's, I, I wish uh, I, I've never been to that part of the world, but it's it's a place that's on my list. And uh, I don't know. I, I, I lived, I guess, vicariously through your Facebook posts. I was just like watching like pictures. It's so weird how that happens because I don't really know you, but yet I was your Facebook friend and was getting you know bits and pieces of this adventure. Have you have you gone to Europe or to? Yeah, Europe and Australia. Um, that's basically it. Mexico. You know, I've done some traveling, but I have never been to Asia. And 
or at least, you know, I've never been, um, I guess if you count, is Australia considered part of Asia? It can't be. I mean, it's not really Asia in my mind, but no, it's considered, it's, it's, it's its its own thing. Yeah. So it's not a, it's not a part of the world that I visited, but eventually I'll get there somehow. It gets, it gets harder, it gets harder to figure out the logistics once you have like children. I have a small child, so it's like. How are we going to, yeah. you know, go to Angkor Wat? <laughs> but, you know, I guess you just pack them up and go. There was Australians there with little kids and stuff. Yeah, the well, Australians travel well. They, I mean, they, like, I feel like that's like a national value in Australia because they're, maybe because they're, like, removed from the world geographically, um, you know, kind of tucked away down there and they, they get out and they go see stuff. But I feel like whenever I go traveling internationally, there's always, like, Australians who are out for, like, six months or a year. Like they really go traveling, you know? Yeah. When I, I, I would live at the Grand Canyon last summer and there is massive amounts of Australians. It's massive. Mm-hmm. Everywhere is an Australian. So what, they're uh, so beautiful. Yeah. They're nice. You know, I did a semester, <laughs> I did a semester abroad when in Australia when I was in college. So I lived down there for six months and it was fun. That's awesome. Uh, so, do, what what do you have uh, on like in your plans going forward? I mean, do you have plans going forward? You're going to keep writing. Uh, for now, you're going to live in Vegas. You're going to keep job searching. Uh, like, what does the like if, if you if the ideal scenario could play out for you? Do you know what that would look like? Oh no, I don't know. I don't know about that. I have no idea. I mean, I I just um I'm spending a lot all my free time now trying to get people to review and get people to talk about the book and everything because I feel really and I, I really believe in it and I really feel invested in it and I feel like I worked a lot of hours on it so I'm spending like all my free time doing that and, and it's like to me I, it's so like getting mentioned on NPR or getting the book out and like seeing people react to it it's like even if I'm dishwashing or even if you know if things are really bad it's like I know that my legacy as a person, I I, I can keep it going. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I, I have, like I have to take care of my IRL real life things. Like you know, it's like I'm taking care of a person right now who's sick, and then I'm trying to get my book. And it's like it's very like I want I want my life to mean like have an ultimate meaning, like my life to be like you know a work of art that has a meaning. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I just want to be that. Well, and it doesn't matter. Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, I think you're well on your way. You know, you've published several books. You're only 33. <clears throat> uh, and I think, too, like, you know, at least I speak from my experience. Like, it, you know, whatever you do, because I have a similar, I think a lot of people who write or who do creative things want their lives to be, to have a meaning. Yeah, I think everybody ultimately wants that, whether they know it or not. But, um, it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be reaching 10 million people. Do you know what I'm saying? Like if you, no, it could no. just be, it could just be a small few. Like maybe my readership is a thousand people on this planet, but if, if my work somehow finds them and it means something to them, like you gotta be, you gotta be able to feel good about that and not hold yourself to some sort of like crazy standard. Uh, do you, do you know, I mean, does that hey, make sense? Do people do that? Aren't you a teacher? Uh, yeah, no, I mean, no, I, I, I have taught, but I'm not currently. So, um, but do you know what I'm saying? Like, you don't have to necessarily, I feel like sometimes people measure their, 
the, their value based on like book sales or how many people they're reaching. And, um, that seems like a, uh, fool's errand, <laughs> a good way to make yourself miserable. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's really like, I feel like a lot, if you're going to be a writer and actually like have any longevity, I think to your career, you have to realize and very like be aware of what kind of writer you are, you know? I mean, if you're the type of person who is like, you're very good at writing cliches, shallow sentences. You love freaking melodrama. You should write a vampire novel because that's who you are, you know? If you're very, very, like, you, you're you're a minority and you're very into thinking about your race or whatever, write about that. And it's like you can't force yourself to write about things you don't actually know or feel or anything, you know? So what and kind of so what kind of writer do you know what kind of writer you are? Like if you like I'm a white guy who's from an area that has had major political problems in it, you know. But I'm a white male. I mean, first of all, I'm a white male American with a certain amount of privilege. But I'm a really kind of schizo in the brain and you know, which leads me to like, you know, Samuel Beckett instead of like, you know who would be like McCarthy, what's his name? Cormac McCarthy. Like, yeah. I can't, I can't write like that because I'm like my whole life is minimalist. I sleep on the floor and stuff. I mean, like the sentence is minimalist that I write, and I sleep on the floor. It's the same thing in my brain. Like it's just like me being a minimalist person. And like I'm not. What is his name? David Foster Wallace. He just writes this huge kind of sentences. I can't do that. You know, I can't write about vampires. And if the writing I do only provides us X amount of sales or an X amount of positive reinforcement, then, well, I should, you know, that's what I aim for. I'm not going to expect any more. The only thing I should expect is me trying my best. It's the only thing. Well, Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. It seems like a healthy way to look at it. And, um, you know, I congratulate you on the new book. I wish you all the best with it. Yeah. And uh, I thank right. you. I thank you uh, for taking the time to talk. It's been really fun hearing from you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. This is really fun. All right, everybody. There you go. That's Noah Cicero. Go get his new novel. It's called Go to Work and Do Your Job, Care for Your Children, Pay Your Bills, Obey the Law, Buy Products. You can follow Noah on Twitter. His handle there is at Noah Cicero, and uh, I believe he's on the Facebook as well. He might be on Facebook. You'll just have to take your chances. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And uh, hey, don't forget about that app, the free official other people app available now for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device. Go get that. Uh, go premium. Splurge. Support the show. Or, uh, you know, if you just want to do a donation via PayPal, some sort of monthly thing, uh, you're welcome to do that as well. Uh, that's the last you'll hear from me on this. I hate that stuff. Asking people to uh, donate. But, you know, I do this show basically for free. And I know thousands of people are listening. So, uh, five bucks? How much is it worth to you? <laughs> Don't answer that. So, uh, I do have some great episodes coming up. I'm going to try to uh, deliver episodes throughout the holiday season on schedule because that is my nature. And uh, I like doing the show. I can't promise 100% that there will not be a hiccup, uh, some kind of delay or brief interruption in service. But the plan as of right now is to try to get it done. 
for you, my listeners. Same as always, two shows a week, Sunday and Wednesday, on time. How do you like that? Please remember that Kafka was a vegetarian and that Paul Gauguin once tried to kill himself with arsenic, but vomited, (coughs) excuse me, but vomited and survived. That's it for now. Thanks again to uh, Noah Cicero. Go get his book, available now from Lazy Fascist. I will be back with uh, a new episode on Wednesday, another conversation with another writerly human being. So thank you for receiving me. I appreciate the reception. And uh, stop writing listicles. Just fucking stop, you whores. Anyone who writes or publishes listicles on a uh, consistent basis is a terrible internet whore who should uh, rot in hell. Merry Christmas, everybody. (laughs) 